Well, it's so great to be with you online today. I wish we were outside at our outdoor service, but you know, I think last week at our service, weren't we talking a little bit about fragile plans? <laughs> uh, well, here we are, uh, pivoting our plans and moving the service online, but still so glad that we can connect together today and knowing that wherever you are today, that place is a sanctuary and a place of worship. Well, I'm looking forward to opening the word with you uh, today as we begin our new series called A Gentle Answer, our secret weapon in an age of us against them. I think that this kind of a focus is deeply needed for us these days uh, in a world that is divided and weary, I think, in so many ways. As we get back to school this fall, as we look ahead to a presidential election, uh, as we try and continue to navigate the pandemic together, as we fight racism together, the list goes on and on. You know, in our house, uh, especially with our kids, and specifically with our youngest, who is three years old, we use the phrase, big feelings, you ever used that phrase? We talk about what it is when we have moments when we have big feelings. And usually we're ref- referring to a moment when our emotions are controlling our behavior. You ever been there? You know that kind of a moment? Uh, now, it's one thing when I see that kind of a moment in my three-year-old. But the truth is, I think it's happening for all six of us in the house these days, I can tell you it is certainly true for me. Big feelings. How about you? Do you ever have moments when your uh, big feelings are hijacking your behavior? Of course, there's certainly many things that trigger a range of emotions in our world today, especially as we read the headlines. If you turn on the news or look at your news feed or if you're browsing social media or even if you're going to the grocery store and seeing a variety of ways that people are choosing to behave, there are many big feelings for us. And I, today, I'd like for us to recognize and talk about a particular big feeling that I think that our world is fueling in us today, and that is outrage. Outrage. Think about that for a moment. In fact, if I were to ask you, what makes you mad these days? Probably not too hard to come up with something, right? Right? Maybe on this uh, election year, as we are less than 100 days from uh, the presidential election, uh, boy, there's a lot of things that can make us mad. When we think about racism and the ways that our world is crying out and the way that people are trying to navigate this moment, maybe that's making you mad. Maybe you're mad about uh, different elements of the pandemic or whether or not people should be wearing masks. Have you noticed there's a lot of strong feelings surrounding that? But not just those kinds of headline things. What about in your own home and with your family, with your coworkers, with your friends, uh, with your social media accounts? What is it that makes you mad these days? Are you frustrated by others? Are you weary and exhausted? Do you have those kinds of moments when you feel like you have a short fuse? 
Even when we go out uh, in our world to run errands in our daily lives, even that can trigger moments of outrage for us. You know, in these difficult days, I think many people would say that, that we live in a culture of outrage. Our world is fueling outrage. In fact, rather than recognizing disagreements or differing opinions, I think that the message of our world is fueling outrage. Our world says this kind of thing, draw the line in the sand. You are either for me, you are either with me or against me. If you think or feel differently than I do, then it is an affront to my existence. In fact, our us against them world is really fueling this idea of outrage for us that what we ought to be about are the things that we are against. Outrage is extremely effective at generating attention. In fact, at New York University, psychologist Jay Van Bevel and his team analyzed more than a half million tweets. And they specifically uh, went to Twitter, they looked at these tweets that used moral or emotional language. And they discovered that for every moral or emotional word used in a tweet, that it increased the rate of retweeting by 15 to 20%. Isn't that something? See, uh, we're in a culture that, that fuels outrage these days. And, and our world is telling us that outrage ought to be our response to these difficult times. When we have those feelings of anger or outrage, it can boost feelings in us of, of righteousness, of power, of moral superiority. In fact, what's so dangerous about this is that outrage can actually become satisfying and addictive for us. You know, when we experience outrage or, or anger, there's a physical reaction that happens in our brains. It's the triggering the area of our brains called the amygdala. This is the area of the brain that's responsible for an instinctive fight or flight kind of response. Now, there's a psychologist named Daniel Goldman. He is the author of Emotional Intelligence, and he calls this overreaction to stress an amygdala hijack. There's actually something that happens in our brains. Uh, what, what happens is a situation causes your amygdala to hijack control of your response to stress. And the amygdala disables the frontal lobes of your brain, which you need in order to think clearly and make rational decisions and control your responses. Control has been hijacked by the amygdala. See, outrage actually triggers this physiological response in our bodies. And what happens is it often causes us to act less than our best. In fact, when we're in moments of outrage, what we find is that we are reacting, we're instinctively responding rather than pausing to respond. We react instead of respond out of our best we said there's a lot that we can say about outrage today. 
Well, let's think about that as followers of Jesus. Jesus paints a very different kind of picture for us. In fact, Jesus, when we open up the scripture, models for us what it is to live with a different kind of value system. And one of the things about Jesus, though, that we have to recognize in the midst of this is that Jesus in no way denies that that life is difficult and challenging and messy and, and that there is suffering and strife. Rather, Jesus shows us how to live right in the middle of the swampy mess. Today, I'd like to read uh, some scripture for you today, and and I'd invite you to take a few moments to to take a breath right now and, and quiet your heart and listen to the way that Jesus describes kingdom living. I'm going to read a good portion this morning from Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll be reading from the message, so it probably will sound different than what you may have been accustomed to if you've studied this text before, because I'd like for you to hear it in this conversational manner. So I would invite you to quiet your heart for a moment, to pause and to listen to what Jesus says to us about kingdom living. Matthew chapter 5 at verse 1. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed. When you've worked up a good appetite for God, he's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, consider yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when this happens. Give a cheer, even. For though they don't like it, I do, and all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. 
if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine, keep open house, be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up to God, this generous Father in heaven. To verse 38. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word. What I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Today, as we spend time soaking in those words of Jesus, my hope for us is that it sounds differently to our ears and to our hearts, that it sounds different than our world that is fueling outrage in us, that we hear the way that Jesus is inviting us to live as kingdom subjects. Now, I remind you today that, that if you are a follower of Jesus, then that means your primary citizenship is the kingdom of God. That means your primary allegiance is to God because you are a child of God. And that means this world is not your home. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, then your character and your actions and your words and your thoughts ought to be shaped by the one who is your king of kings. 
You see, that's a very different kind of perspective. We're used to uh, the habit of, of starting the conversation with our position on a matter. What do we believe? Where's the line in the sand? What's right? What's wrong? What are we ticked off about? But I believe that God is much more concerned about the posture of our souls. What is our attitude and behavior towards those who are around us, especially those with whom we might ardently disagree, but who are also people who are made in the image of God. See, we like to look at issues and bottom lines and votes and position statements, but Jesus says that what's on the inside is what matters most. He's looking at our hearts. And what he requires of us is love. That's at the center of being a kingdom subject. Now, I know that feels nearly impossible to us. That can be extremely difficult in moments of outrage when someone else is advocating at the top of their lungs something that we oppose with every ounce of our being. I know that. When our blood boils because the issues matter so deeply to us, it is very difficult to choose love. I can tell you today, as we talk about a gentle answer, that is not for the weak. Choosing a gentle answer and, and choosing love requires extraordinary strength. Doing so means that we have to keep the cross at the center of our view so that we can choose love. One of my mentors and spiritual heroes is a woman named Anne Smith. I've talked about her many times. And uh, I heard a, a chapel service that she did online this last week, and she said this. In every encounter with another person, we either give life or drain life. I want to be a life giver. If my spirit is wrong, no matter how accurate my theology or how right my thinking, I do harm. God, give me the right spirit. I want to remind you today that especially in these days, in the midst of a culture of outrage, we have the opportunity to help people encounter Jesus simply by offering a gentle answer. We all know that gentleness is attractive. It's the quality of someone who is a life giver. So let's talk for just a moment about how we actually do this. How do we take a moment of outrage and respond with a gentle answer? How do we help people encounter Jesus, instead of our rage. Well, first, I'd like to acknowledge that gentleness is not weakness. You know, I think back to uh, a, a moment uh, when our son, Will, was one year old. And at that moment, we knew that, we had, uh, that he had two little brothers that would soon be making their entrance. And, and so one of the things that I did to prepare Will for this is I bought him a baby doll so that we could practice, and I drilled in one word to my one-year-old Will, gentle 
gentle, and we would practice a gentle touch on that little baby doll. See, Will has always been a strong kid. He still is, and I love that about him. And as I was trying to teach him gentleness, I was not trying to make his muscles go away. I wasn't trying to diminish his strength. I was trying to teach my son to voluntarily restrain the strength that he had, the strength that I love in him. I wanted him to learn to voluntarily restrain that. That's a picture of gentleness. You see, when you respond with a gentle answer, uh, it's because you choose that response. Gentleness is a form of strength, not brute force, but strength of intention. Gentleness is the strength of love as the primary filter. And I know that's hard to do. I know this is difficult in moments uh, when we have our amygdala hijacked, when, when we are in an intense moment. And I know that it requires that we lean on the power of Jesus Christ who dwells within us, who can help us to voluntarily restrain the strength that we have to respond with strength of intention, with love. See, when, when the love of Jesus is the primary vision for our lives, that's the only thing that, that really has the power for us uh, to give us a gentle answer. You know, we think about what it is in, in our lives to, to hold the cross of Jesus Christ to take a moment in our lives to remember the, the grace that has been poured out for us. That, as the scripture says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we think about the, the grace and the gentleness and the generosity of our God, it floors us. And my friend, I want to encourage you to think about holding the cross of Jesus in your hands. Because when you do that, it is very difficult when you are holding the cross at the center of your life to then look at another person and say, I can't give you gentleness. I cannot forgive. You are not deserving. I cannot be generous towards you. Suddenly, when the cross of Jesus is in your hands, it changes our hearts. It changes our ability to say, because of what Jesus has done for me, because of the way that I have encountered Jesus and the grace poured out on me, I too can help others encounter this Jesus and this love and this generosity. I think today about how we took communion together. What an image that is for us. What a physical experience that is for us to be reminded that, that Jesus dwells in us, that we are called the body of Christ. The cross becomes central to our vision, and that helps us give a gentle answer. 
So today, um, as we think about what it is to, to grow in our ability to give a gentle answer in those moments that are really challenging, I want to give you two really simple things. And the first one is simply pray. To take the moment when you feel the outrage and to pause and look to God and to first bring to him your outrage, your concern, your frustration, to take that moment and first pause and look to heaven and ask God for his wisdom and for his grace. See, the truth is, when we think about a gentle answer, I don't have some top secret formula to give you today that you can use in any situation. But what I do have to remind you today is that the power of Jesus Christ in your life is real that it is true, and that he can help you in moments when you don't have what it takes to give a gentle answer. His strength is sufficient. And so I remind you, in those moments that I know are incredibly difficult, simply pause and take a breath and look towards heaven and ask for the presence of Jesus that you might encounter him, and that others might encounter him through you. I also want to remind you today, uh, as we think about growing in our ability to offer a gentle answer, practice. <laughs> practice matters. Do you know how you respond in the little moments is training for the big moments? Reverend Scott Sauls, in his book called A Gentle Answer, which inspired this series, writes this in his book. The way to protect ourselves and others from the wildfire that sparks of anger can become is through attentive and faithful stewardship of the minor daily irritants in our lives. As a treadmill and as a set of weights in the gym serve as instruments for physical health, other things like a crying baby at 3 a.m. or an unanticipated and costly car repair or an annoying remark on social media or a snoring spouse can all serve as instruments for our spiritual health. He says, each daily challenge or pet peeve presents us with an opportunity to either feed or starve our toxic anger, impulse. When we seek to be people with a gentle answer, the little moments matter. And the little moments are opportunities for us to pause and pray and look towards heaven and practice gentleness. Now, perhaps you'd like to dive in further. Uh, and I'd encourage you to do that. I'd like to recommend a couple of resources that have been very helpful for me. The first is the book called A Gentle Answer by Scott Sauls, a wonderful read and a wonderful way to dig into this scripture to understand the gentleness of God towards us that empowers our own gentle answers towards others. 
Another book that I love, I've read a couple of times, is called Crucial Conversations. It's an intensely practical guide uh, to figure out what to say and how to respond in moments that are very difficult. You'd find it helpful in your family relationships and your work relationships uh, and in big and difficult moments in your life. Friends, whatever it is, I encourage you to, to dig in and, and work on this. The opportunity in front of us is, is tremendous for us to grow and to be shaped uh, by the character of Jesus Christ in our own lives and to help our world encounter the good news of Jesus. Our world is hungry for a gentle answer these days. Friends, I'm so glad that we're on this journey together. I know it's anything but easy, but I also know that these are the kinds of moments when God can do some amazing transformative things in our lives. And that 2020, as difficult as it is, has tremendous potential for it to be a formative time for our souls. My friend, let's pause. I'd love to pray for you today. Oh, our gracious God, we're so grateful that you are not finished with us yet. And God, we come before you today uh, simply acknowledging all the ways that this year has left us at a loss, all of the ways that we are weary and exhausted and frustrated and outraged. And rightfully so, because there are so many things that are not as they should be in our broken world. God, I pray for each brother and sister as they listen today, as they open your word, Lord, as we soak in the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. God, I pray that you would just spark something in our hearts today. God, that you would, that you would give us courage to be people who are formed by you. And God, I pray for each person that in the moments today, in the hours ahead, in the days and weeks to come, in the moments of outrage that get sparked, God, I pray that you would help all of us to be people that have a gentle answer because of your presence in our lives. So God, we simply come before you together and we open our hearts and our lives to you. We belong to you. And we ask, God, that you would continue to move and work for good. God, we love you. And we thank you today for your gentle love towards us. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.